welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we are going to be talking about Psalms 139. Psalms 139 is probably one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. And this psalm is pretty popular because advocates of negative theology often turn to it because some of the descriptions in this psalm can be taken for descriptions of omniscience. And they don't have very many proof texts for omniscience, and so they try to take what they can get. Just kind of listen to how they talk and how they use this proof text. And I'm going to play you a clip from William Lane Craig. And he turns to Psalms 139 as his go-to proof text for the initial illustration of omniscience. And just wonder to yourself, does what he quotes prove what he's trying to say? Does God knowing you know, what people say before they say it, does that prove that God knows all events of all of future history for all time? It seems to me that the scripture is very clear that God does foreknow everything that's going to happen. The psalmist says, even before a word is on my tongue, lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. So that even the very words that you speak are known by God before you even conceive them. Is everyone convinced? Let's say I said that about my wife. My wife knows what I'm going to say before I say it. Now, is that sentence out of place in, you know, normal conversation with other people? No, it's not. People say that all the time. Like, if you know someone really well, you know what they're going to say before they say it. So it's interesting, then, that William Lane Craig, a renowned metaphysicist, a renowned Christian debater, author, that he would turn to this Psalms 139 and use this as his opening argument for complete future omniscience of all events. Words that people are going to say right before they say them. That, that's what the text says, and that's, that's his opening proof text. So it kind of tells you something about what he's trying to do to the audience. He's trying to lead them into some conclusion, a conclusion that is not warranted by the text. Notice a very, very important omission on the point of William Lane Craig. He refers to the author of the psalm as the psalmist. But the thing is, the psalm gives the name of the author. And the author is David, King David. And is anything unique about King David? I mean, the Bible records that King David is a man after God's own heart. And King David experienced a lot in his lifetime. And a lot of his uh, dealings and his rise to fame, his rise to power, dealt with the hand of God. God was specifically leading, directing, and guiding him. And that's exactly what we see in a lot of King David's psalms. They are intensely personal and very unique to King David. Not anyone could just pick up King David's psalms and just apply them to themselves. And if they did, a lot of times, you know, some of the events that are described just are not generally applicable. And other things that King David writes, if we were to try to apply them to ourselves, we would be engaging in a lot of hubris, thinking that we are on the level of King David, a man that's described as a man of God's own heart. So anyone could just check this out. They could go to the Psalms and flip to Psalms that are written by David. You got two very different types of Psalms that are written by David. One type is intensely personal. You see a lot of first-person pronouns, I, me, and stuff. And then sometimes you got generalizations that King David makes. And those psalms are very differently written. So let's turn to Psalms 26 real quick. 
a psalm of David, and uh, some of the language in this psalm matches up with 139. A psalm of David, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, I have trusted in the Lord, I shall not slip. Look at this. King David is calling God to action. He's saying, Lord, come save me, come do something. He's trying to stir God to action, which is not something you'd expect in someone who thinks that, you know, the future is set and the future is known, stuff like that. And uh, King David adds to this in verse 2, examine me, O Lord, and prove me, try my mind and heart. This is one thing that King David offered to God over and over. He's saying, God, I serve you, I follow you. You could test me and you could try to know this for yourself. You know, I'm telling the truth. And that is definitely not a concept that's uh, compatible with complete omniscience of all future events and all of everything. You know, this kind of negative theology idea that God just has all knowledge and wouldn't need to try and test in order to see what David thinks and how David feels and how David will react to situations. And that's something you often see in the Bible is God is trying hearts and minds to see what people will do. He tried Israel in the wilderness to see what they would do. You know, and King David is offering up the same thing for himself. He says, God, I'm true to you. Test me and know that that is true. In contrast to this, you got Psalms by King David, which are very generalized. Psalms 12 is an example. And he talks about how the godly man ceases and then the poor are oppressed. But God's going to keep those who fear him, the righteous man, and he's going to help those people persevere. You don't see personal pronouns in these types of writings because he's trying to make general points about general situations. So his, his psalms that are personal are meant to be personal. He's in trying times. He's, he's experiencing pain or he's experiencing redemption, something like that. And often you see his calls for help and he's like, Lord, I'm dying. All these people are surrounding me. They're trying to kill me. Save me out of this, Lord. Save me out of this. And he offers reasons why God should save him out. He says, Lord, if you save me, I will praise you. And so he's trying to reason with God. He's saying, God, if you let me die, then there's not going to be that praise and that uh, glory to your name that I could give you. So please save me. There's my reasons. We see an example of this in Psalms 9. And David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. And so just like uh, Moses in Exodus 32, he believes God is reasonable. And he could give God reasons, and those reasons will help God act. So not only does King David praise God and rely on God, but he also thinks that uh, adding in rationale, adding in arguments, is also a good way to stir God to action. If anyone wants to read a nice little article that I pulled out different extracts of uh, how King David writes and how he thinks about God, just Google King David, open theist poet. And King David believed very heavily that God was able to be influenced, that God had deep emotions, that God tests individuals to try to figure out about those individuals. King David was an open theist poet, and it's very strong in the Psalms, these ideas. So it's kind of odd that uh, the Calvinists, the negative theologians, they'll turn to Psalms 139 and they'll try to make it about negative theology, these concepts that aren't found uniformly in King David's writings and are very contrary to 
King David's style of writing and what King David thinks about God in his other Psalms. It's just incongruous. It doesn't work together. So back to Psalm 139. When we're reading Psalm 139, a good mental exercise that we can take is try to consider what if King David was writing to someone else other than God? What if he's writing to his wife? And when we start to pull back our theological speculation that we bring into the text, we could kind of see how King David's writing with what emotion and how he's treating the subject of this text. And if, if God was like inserted with wife or friend or something like that, we see that it's intensely personal. It's only when we try to inject our own theology that we bring to the text that we try to make this a general psalm that's applicable to everyone, as if King David didn't mean for this psalm to be specifically about him and his unique relationship with God. I mean, it's okay to generalize some of the things that uh, King David writes. It's okay to appropriate some of his psalms for ourselves. But we have to understand we are not on the same level as King David. King David had a special relationship with God that we could only hope to ever achieve. And this relationship is illustrated in the Bible. It's talked about in the Bible. And King David is the star of the Old Testament that everyone wanted to be like and no one in the Old Testament achieved. So starting off Psalm 139, I'm going to be reading from the ESV because that's a fine translation of Old Testament. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. Lord, you have searched me and known me. Right off the bat, you have searched me and known me. And this is King David speaking. So you get a very personal sense. And what is God doing? God is trying to figure out about David through searching. And this is reinforced with the last lines of Psalms 139. And he says in Psalms 139, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. King David, he starts off his psalm, and he ends his psalm inviting God to learn about him. He's inviting God to try new things and experiment, and to really ensure that King David is loyal and righteous and will worship God. So King David does not believe that God is omniscient in the classical sense. He believes that God tests, that God learns, and that uh, there might be some doubt still in King David that God might not fully trust him. And so he's trying to alleviate any of those fears in God that David might turn unrighteous or turn evil, something like that. He's inviting God to, to mitigate those fears. So it's really funny that uh, the go-to proof text for omniscience really has strong elements of non-omniscience just directly in the text. And so it goes on, uh, Psalms 139.2, You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Afar? What does that mean, afar? I mean, some people speculate maybe this is God searching from a time eternal or something like that. King David, his concept of God, and you read this throughout the Psalms, that, that God is in heaven, and God's looking down, and when we pray, we lift our eyes to heaven. This is pretty standard Jewish theology. I mean, 
God is either in heaven or he's occupying Zion. He sometimes inhabits the temple on earth. And you get a sense that God can inhabit one or multiple of these places at the same time. But it's not this idea of Platonism. It's not this idea of total omnipresence where God's this singular entity invading all of space-time in a single instance and, and cannot be physically located anywhere because physical location creates parts into the perfectly simple being. It's, that's just a foreign concept to Jewish theology. So the next verse says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So King David is uh, describing this process by which God acquires information. This is God learning, and that, that's what's being described here. And King David, this is very personal. It's not like King David is writing to, you know, what's the most omniscient thing that we have access to? It's uh, probably the United States and the NSA and their data spine. You know, he's not writing to the NSA saying, oh, the NSA, you, you watch everything I do on the computer, and, and you watch everything everyone does on the computer. It's, it's, instead, it's very personally saying, God, this is, this is our relationship, you and me. This, this is something we have together. And he's saying, you search me out, and you are acquainted with all my ways. This is unique, it's special, and, uh, you know, if you just generalize it to everyone, uh, God's super acquainted with all the evil ways of the most evil person living in some foreign land that's not Israel. It, it really just undermines the emotion that we're getting out of this psalm. And it, and it undermines the emotion in all of King David's psalms, which are, which are intensely personal. We need to notice the hyperbolic uh, sense that King David is talking. He's saying, you know everything about me. But then he's also inviting God in the same chapter to test him in order to know him. So yeah, that, that's common in uh, normal human communication where you say, oh yeah, you know everything or something like that. Or, or we know each other deeply, you know everything about me. Uh, but then you can still test, and you can still know more, and that's not like a violation. He's not trying to write a, a computer manual for troubleshooting data, troubleshooting coding, or something like that. He's just talking like a normal person's going to talk. And the negative theologian, the, the Calvinist, you know, they are going to think that King David, in his intensely personal psalm to God, is writing this manual of negative theology, praising all these negative attributes. It's just not what's happening, and it's counter to how, how a normal reader should take this text. King David then writes, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And this is in the context of God searching King David to know him, and God watching King David and being intensely familiar with how King David acts. And that's how God acquires information. And so God could know what King David's going to say because he knows King David. And uh, King David doesn't think this is like some sort of absolute. And remember, he does invite God to try to see, as he writes that, he says, and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalms 139, 24. So King David doesn't take this as this metaphysical absolute. He doesn't take this as proof positive of super omniscience of all future events. He's not like William Lane Craig and the Calvinists. He's just talking like 
a normal person would talk. Then King David writes, he says, uh, You hem me in, behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. So he's saying God really protects him, and God doesn't protect everyone. This is uh, limited to perhaps David and perhaps other righteous people, but uh, David's talking about himself here, and you can't just export this concept to everyone everywhere. Uh, there's definite limitations in this verse, no matter if you're a Calvinist, if you're a classical theologian, if you're an open theist. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And so this is in the context of God hemming David in. It's in the context of God protecting David. And so David really ends this uh, series of verses with, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So he's not saying, God, you are physically located everywhere. Anywhere I go, you're just already there and uh, because you fill up all space on earth. And that, that's how this verse is normally taken, which I don't think that's what David is saying at all. He's saying, no matter where I go, uh, you are there following me and protecting me and giving me this personal attention. It's not this praise for God just being physically located everywhere. That's not what's going on here. This is God following him from afar. He's searching David from afar. He's protecting David from afar. Just uh, keep in mind the hyperbolic language being used here. He's going through extreme lengths to try to illustrate a principle using hyperbole. And, you know, that's, that's perfectly acceptable, and people use that all the time. Even that phrase, all the time, that is a hyperbole. So just, just keep that in mind. David goes on, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And so within Israel, there was a strong contingent of Israelites who believed that God could not see in the dark. God did not know what they were doing. And in Ezekiel, there's this odd scene where Ezekiel is led to this mountainside and this door is open for him and he goes in. And inside this door, he's in this room and uh, the people don't know he's there, but he's watching them perform all sorts of abominations to false gods. And God is like, these guys, they don't think that I know what they're doing. So keep that in mind. Israel... Their normal understanding of Yahweh, their normal understanding of God, is not that God knows everything. God doesn't know everything to them. And uh, the authors of the Bible, they don't counter this with negative theology. They don't counter this with these descriptions of omniscience and, and simplicity and immutability and these negative attributes. They don't argue it in that fashion. Their argument is precisely, yes, God does know what you're doing. And here King David is applying that to himself, saying, God, you follow me around. Even the darkness does not shield your eyes from me. David goes on, For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This is one of the most quoted verses by negative theologians for the idea of omniscience, of future events. They say there's this book that exists, and it describes everything about David's life, when he's going to die, what, what he's going to do, what he's going to eat for breakfast one day, stuff like that. But that's not actually what's happening in this verse. And the Jewish translation has a little bit different of a translation. I'm going to be reading from the JSV, and uh, this is an uh, older edition. It's not the edition available on eSword, but it says this, my frame was not concealed from you when I was shaped in a hidden place, knit together in the recesses of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed limbs. They were all recorded in your book. In due time, they were formed to the very last one of them. And so this version takes this uh, idea that King David is writing about fetology. He's talking about being developed in the womb, which makes a lot of sense in context. Because in context, he's talking about, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well, my frame is not hidden from you when they're being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, all this stuff, unformed substance and my parts and stuff like that, that's all fetology, that's all about development in the womb. And then the Calvinist, the negative theologian, the translators of the ESV, think that uh, he quickly jumps to some sort of book that records everything that's ever going to happen in his life. It just doesn't fit the context. And John Calvin himself saw this. John Calvin was actually pretty good with Hebrew. They're, they're, I'm very impressed when I read John Calvin and his take on these various verses. And he talks about possible meanings and you know what can text support, what can't. Where John Calvin goes bad, though, is when he just tries to say that the text doesn't mean what it says because God's like lisping. And he has to resort to that quite often because the text doesn't actually support his ideas. But he's, he's a good translator. He knows his Hebrew. Calvin writes, Some read Yaman in the nominative case, when the days were made. The sense being, according to them, all my bones were written in thy book. O God, from the beginning of the world, when days were first formed by thee, and when as yet there were none of them actually existed. The other is the more natural meaning. So John Calvin's going to tell us now what the more natural meaning of this text is. That the different parts of the human body are formed in a succession of time. For in the first germ there is no arrangement of parts or proportion of members, but is developed, and it takes its particular form progressively. So I was debating this Calvinist, and it was funny. He's quoting this verse, and he's saying that God knows all our days before they ever happen. And I'm like, you know, in context, this is about fetology. So look at all the things that are happening, and uh, look at these other translations of the Bible that uh, specifically say that this verse is about parts being formed in the womb and not days. And isn't that a possibility? I, I don't care if that's the most rational possibility. Is that just a possibility? Can the verse mean that? And he's like, oh, no, no, it can't mean that. You're wrong. And my verse just shows that open theism's wrong and, and Calvinism is right. It's like, okay, here's John Calvin, the founder of Calvinism, on this verse, and he says the more natural meaning, never mind just a probable meaning, but he says the more natural meaning is that this is about body parts being formed. And the guy's like, 
Well, first he disagrees that Calvin even said the thing. I have to quote it and quote it in context and explain what's going on, what exactly he's saying. And then the guy, he just, he didn't believe that Calvin said it for the longest time. And finally he admits, yeah, Calvin said it, but Calvin is wrong. And then he refused to apologize for not believing me when I said Calvin said it and believed it. Calvinism is so intellectually dishonest, the guy wouldn't even admit that Calvin said it, and once he did, he wouldn't apologize for his unfounded assertions that Calvin didn't say it. And then on top of all that, he discounts it as a possibility. He says, Calvin's wrong, it's not even a possibility. You, you are so dishonest. The verse is about fetology, it's about your parts being formed in the womb, and it's not about all your days being recorded beforehand. That is the least probable explanation of what's going on here. Just look at the context, look at what's going on. So King David goes on and he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. When you talk to people who know and read Hebrew about these verses, uh, this, these are very difficult to interpret, to understand. They don't have a real flow that's uh, readily accessible. Probably the general idea is that uh, God is always thinking about King David or something to that effect. King David goes on and he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. And so David is surrounded by enemies, men of blood, people who are wicked. And we see this in Samuel where David is continually dealing with wicked people people who are against him, trying to kill him, and people who hate God. And, and David is really allying against them with God in the, these verses. So he says, They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So David wants God to kill these people, and we see that as a theme throughout King David's Psalms, that he is consistently calling on God to act, to move, to do stuff, to, to kill the wicked. He says, uh, why do you hide your face from me, O Lord? Come and uh, you know, do justice on earth, kill the wicked, make everything good again, be the ruler on earth. All of these premises all of this, the understandings of these texts, is that God's will is not currently being done on earth. It's not this Calvinist notion that everything's predestined according to God's glory and everything's happening according to a pre-programmed plan. No, instead, just like Jesus said, he said, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And so God's will is not being done on earth. And the prayer of David and the prayer of Jesus and the prayer of so many in the Bible was God come right these wrongs. These things are not good. And uh, sometimes the, the authors of the Bible, they don't understand why God delays. What are you doing, Lord? I'll wake up, I hear my prayer, and come kill these guys. Do something, Lord, because they, they sit there and mock you. Are you going to sit there and listen to them mocking you, Lord? Or are you going to do something about it? Come kill these guys, put them in their place, and make the world good. Make it right. Put your will on earth. So the Hebrew concept, the Jewish theology behind this, is God can act if God wants to. 
and God can act in a powerful and decisive way. But God doesn't always choose to act. And a lot of Hebrew theology is trying to deal with the moral implications of a God who can do something and doesn't act on that thing. And uh, that's why we get a lot of these Psalms that just don't understand evil in the world. A lot of these prophets who don't understand the presence of evil people, why, why the righteous are oppressed and why the wicked prosper. One of the more famous passages is found in Job. And he says, why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, and become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. And so Jeremiah talks about this. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? He says, Why, Lord, why are you letting this go on? Psalms 94, he says, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech, they speak insolent things, all the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break into pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. In the first verse, he says, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? He cuts himself off mid-sentence to repeat this. This is a strong theme, and they just don't understand what's going on. They're not Calvinists. They don't think that there's a divine plan for everything. They don't interpret everything in metaphysical fatalism. They see God as negligent in his duties. They still worship God, and they still call him righteous, and they still give him praises, but they are trying to influence God to make right the wrong. And they want to tell God, this is how you should be doing things. Psalms 139 then ends with David inviting God to search him in order to know him. All of Psalms 139 is not about negative theology. It's all about King David's personal relationship with God. It's all about God changing and God uh, following King David and giving him special favors and, and just this personal relationship. And it's not a generally applicable to everyone. We'd be engaging in hubris in order to just apply everything King David wrote to ourselves. If you have questions or comments, uh, feel free to add those to the God is Open webpage or start a thread on God is Open. Thank you for listening.